So think about that this morning. For 17 years, our speaker this morning pastored this church. In fact, in many ways, pastored this church after a very, very hard season. Young youth pastor comes onto the team, isn't here but just a few months, when tragically the senior pastor passes away. And at that moment, the board begins looking and the church begins looking, and they realize that God had not brought the young pastor to be the youth pastor, but actually that God had brought him to be the pastor. And through a series of events, and through, as you have said many times, Bill, the woman sitting right behind you, and I don't think that that is just, I, I think there's even a significance in the fact that she's behind you because she's constantly been saying, let me lift up the arms of Pastor Bill Leach. Let me, let me lift him up. Let me, let me encourage him. Let me help him. Let me pastor him. Let me, let me do these different things. And for 17 years, you faithfully pastored here at Bethany Assembly until um, you betrayed them. And uh, <laughs> just, I'm just saying, I, I, I wasn't here, Bill, so I don't know how that feels, but I'm sure that there's many of them who felt that way. No, I'm, no. but you went and then were asked to lead at a, at a different level. And um, when I say different, it, not necessarily a, better, a different level. God had a different calling for you uh, and for your life. And so for 27 years, you faithfully served as the Michigan District Superintendent and just uh, did a, an amazing job. And yeah, you guys can give him a big hand for that. I could go on and on and on and talk about the legacy, um, Pastor Leach, that you have left on this church. And I won't. Um, and the reason is, is because I want to give you an opportunity to share what God has just birthed inside of you, what he's been doing inside of you. And so, come on, Bethany, 17 years pastoring this church. Would you stand to your feet? Come on, stand to your feet and give a warm appreciation to Pastor Phil Leach. Thank you. Love you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me get you a table. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. I uh, can't begin to describe what a wonderful um, opportunity is for Marilyn and me to be home with you, especially during this awesome 75-year anniversary. Um, so many memories flood us, and uh, better be careful this morning uh, that uh, we could be here for a long time if I, if I uh, allow myself to uh, get into too many of those, and I will a little bit in, in my message this morning, but... Meryl and I have remarked so many times that uh, the 17 years in Adrian were the best years of our lives. This church uh, made me who I am, made us who we are. And uh, it's a delight to be here today. Thank you, Pastor and Kasha, for your leadership. We love you, and you're doing an awesome job. And uh, it's so, inc yes, amen. 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 It's so encouraging for us to see how well Bethany is doing and that the, um, that the seeds of vision that Sister Annabelle and Donna Leepler planted in this church 75 years ago still remain strong today, and uh, we are grateful uh, for that. I'd be remiss this morning if I didn't um, 
recognize somebody that's not from Bethany, but that's been a major part of our lives. Uh, Lisa Nagel came for the service today. She served as my administrative assistant at the district office for many, many years. Uh, served at the office, really came on just about the same time I did and uh, became my uh, secretary and really uh, headed up all of our work. And uh, she has made me look so good. And uh, Lisa, stand, will you? And uh, let people see who you are. Thank you for coming and being here today. And I don't think Carl and Dave are in this service, right? I didn't see them, but... Uh, I think they'll be in the second service. Carla McKelvey and Dave. Uh, Carla was my office manager here for a number of years. Uh, along with Barb Carrico. Is Barb here? Barb's downstairs. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, Cheryl Rice. I know she goes by something else these days. But, uh, um, but uh, I'm so grateful for all of those who have uh, poured into our, into our lives. Uh, love the uh, video about good to great. Uh, thank you for doing that. That's what Bethany's all about. Um, but turn with me in your Bibles to, uh, I want to take my time to preach this morning, and I'll do a little reminiscing there. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 2, uh, reading verses 11 through 13. Thanks to Alyssa for making me look good today. Uh, I can assure you that whatever I sent doesn't begin to look like what's on, on the screen. So... Uh, I appreciate her. Exodus chapter 2, looking at verses 11 through 13. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew. And then turn right to the next chapter, chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Forty years have transpired. Uh, Moses has been on the backside of the desert, uh, discouraged, dejected, feeling like a failure. He comes to the burning bush, and God says, Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And may the Lord add his blessing to his word today. My topic today was love, the uh, wonderful uh, component that's been part of Bethany for these 75 years. I want to talk to you today about the Bethany Way. Bob Green, in his heartfelt book, Once Upon a Town, revisits... An amazing story of an entire community's season of significance. North Platte, Nebraska is about as isolated as a small town can conceivably be. It's in the middle of the country, out on the plains. It's hours by car, even from the cities of Omaha and Lincoln. Few people venture there, but before our age, the Union Pacific's Railroad, the Union Pacific Railroad's main line ran right through North Platte. 
1941, the town had little more than 12,000 residents. When World War II began, with young men being transported across the American continent to both coasts before being shipped out to Europe and the Pacific, those Union Pacific cars carried a most precious cargo, the boys of the United States on their way to battle. The trains rolled into North Platte day and night. The miracle began as a mistake. Ten days after Pearl Harbor, the families and friends of members of the Nebraska National Guard's Company D heard a rumor. Their sons, buddies, and sweethearts would be coming through North Platte on a troop train on their way to the West Coast. About 500 townspeople came to the station with food and treats and love to give to their boys. The train finally arrived. The people of North Platte hurried to the cars. But the soldiers on board were not Company D of the Nebraska National Guard. They were Company D of the Kansas National Guard. After a few awkward moments, the North Platte residents began to pass out their gifts. These hadn't been the boys the townspeople were looking for, but it wasn't the soldiers' fault. The men, women, and children of North Platte poured out their love, wishing the Kansas boys the best fortune, giving them the presents that had been intended for the Nebraska troops and waved them on their way. Ray Wilson, a 26-year-old store clerk, wrote a letter to the North Platte Daily Bulletin. She offered to give her time, free of charge, to turn the depot into a canteen. The idea struck a chord. Why not meet all of the trains coming through to offer the servicemen a little affection and support? On Christmas Day, 1941, it began. A troop train rolled in, and the surprised soldiers on board were greeted by the North Platte residents with welcoming words, heartfelt smiles, and baskets of food and treats. What happened in the years that followed is nothing short of amazing. Some would say a miracle. The railroad depot on Front Street was turned into the North Platte Canteen. Each day of the year, from 5 o'clock in the morning until the last troop train had passed through well after midnight, the canteen was open. The troop trains were scheduled to stop for only 10 minutes. The people of North Platte made those 10 minutes count. Each day of the war, an average of three to 5,000 military personnel were welcomed to the canteen. Toward the end of the war, that number grew to 8,000 a day on as many as 23 separate troop trains. Can you imagine it? 8,000 a day. And they were all greeted. They were all fed. They were all thanked. Many of the soldiers were just teenagers. This was their first time away from home. They were lonely. They knew some of them might never come back from war. 
And then when they felt they were in the middle of nowhere, they rolled into a train station and were greeted by men, women, and children telling them, thank you. Their country cared about them. The numbers are almost enough to make you cry. Remember, only 12,000 people lived in that secluded town. It was wartime. Sugar and gasoline and other commodities they needed to make this effort work were rationed. But during the war, six million soldiers were served. This was not something orchestrated by the government. This was not paid for with public money. The only federal funding for the North Platte Canteen came from President Roosevelt, who sent a $5 bill saying that he heard about what was taking place and he wanted to help. It might have been a dream, but it wasn't. Six million soldiers who passed through that little town. Six million of our fathers before we were born. Some of our fathers met our mothers there. Single girls put their name and address in popcorn balls, inviting soldiers to correspond. And every single train was greeted. Every man was welcomed. It was a love story. A love story between a country and its sons. And it's long gone. Or is it? Bob Green's book reminds me of the local church at its best. My life is a tale of two churches. The Little Assemblies of God Church in Schenectady, New York, that rescued my mother and brothers and me in Bethany Assembly, where I felt firsthand what the first church in Jerusalem must have experienced. The great people of Bethany, many still in this room, had, and you have, a deep love for God, his church, and lost people. Meryl and I loved pastoring this church. As I said, it was the sweet spot of our lives and remains that to this day. We love seeing people saved. We savored the miracles. We enjoyed watching people grow. It was thrilling watching you find your places of service in our church and community. We took pleasure in the parade of young leaders following a call on their lives, making their way to universities or Bible colleges or the workplace. We delighted in the mission's fervor. And to think God allowed Marilyn and me to be a part of it, it's awesome. I admit it today, I am held hostage by the powerful picture of the Acts 2 church. I'm utterly captivated by a single vision of the, the potential beauty of the local church. Listen to Bill Hybel's description of the local church. He says, there's nothing like the church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, 
the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. That's been the Bethany way. Years ago, I read a book by Dean Smith. Some of you will recognize the name. He was the coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels, very successful basketball program. And he had a philosophy. He dubbed it the North Carolina way. It was very simple. It was, it was just this play hard, play smart, and play together. And he believed that they would play hard, they'd play smart, they'd learn the fundamentals, and, and they'd execute the plays. And if they would play together, if they would be a team, that then the wins and losses would take care of themselves. If I were to capture the Bethany way in that way, I mean, during my time as well as today, I know that, you know, we had vision and mission statements and we had our philosophy and it was simply based on three passages, Ephesians 4, God calls leaders to equip people for the work of the ministry. We're all ministers, we're all called, we're all gifted, and we all need to be plugged in, and uh, we worked hard at that. And then Acts 2, 42 to 47, the systems of the early church, worship, fellowship, discipleship, evangelism, if we did those things well. And then Luke 4, 16 and following, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth. He said, this is why I came. The Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach the gospel to the poor and heal the brokenhearted and preach deliverance to the captives and, and those kinds of things. And those are the things that we lived and dreamed and, and prayed and served and continue today. But if I were to sum all that up the way Dean Smith did with his players, I would say the Bethany way can be described in this fashion. Love God, love people, and prove it. Love God, love people, and prove it. It's been our calling and destiny. When Sister Annabelle and Donna Liebler came to Adrian, they saw the children in the housing projects, and they bought the little chapel house on Molzer Street. And Donna told me many times, because I never had the privilege of meeting Sister Annabelle, but Donna told me many times that Sister Annabelle, she had been a church planter, and she came to Adrian in the waning years of her life. She knew it was her last effort, and she said she believed in her heart that it would be her greatest, that it would have the greatest influence of anything God had ever allowed her to be a part of, and, and I believe that she was true. That was prophetic. You know, they named their fledgling work Bethany, uh, because Bethany was the place in the Bible that Jesus liked to go and hang out with his friends. And that's the reason for our name, that we would be a place where Jesus would like to come and hang out with his friends. You know, I wish we had time to really unpack the, the story, the passage, because I'll allude to several today. I, I told Marilyn this message is a little disjointed, but... Um, I'm going to try to preach a whole bunch of sermons in this little, in this little message. But uh, when Jesus strides into the temple during Holy Week, the second time he cleanses the temple, he drives out the, the sellers of animals and the money changers, not because what they were doing was wrong. 
They were providing a needed service. People needed kosher animals. If you came from a long way, it wasn't practical to bring a lamb without blemish to the temple. And, and you had to pay your tithes, the temple tax. You had to pay it in temple currency. It was considered anathema. It was considered wrong to bring in other coins that had the imprint of Caesar and, and false gods on them. And so, so you had to turn your money into money that was acceptable to bring to the Lord God. It wasn't, it wasn't what they were doing. What Jesus was angry about was where they were doing it and the prices they were charging. They were doing business in the court of the Gentiles. And I don't have time to unpack it all, but the court of the Gentiles was the only part of the temple area where a Gentile, a non-Jew, could come and be anywhere near the Holy of Holies, the place they believed God's presence dwelt the most. They were crowding out the one place dedicated to all of Jesus' friends, the people Jesus. These are my friends. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. And they were crowding them out, and they were price-gouging the poor. The reason the writers emphasized Jesus turned over the tables of the dove sellers is because that was the one sacrifice the poor could afford to buy. The poor were giving their money to make things right with God. It was being used to line the pockets of the rich. And that made Jesus really, really mad. It was a barrier to people who were left to wonder, will I ever give enough? Will I ever sacrifice enough? Will it ever be okay between me and God? And those were exactly the people Jesus would have called a friend. It would be exciting today to walk with Jesus and company through the Gospels and watch him interact with people. He was a friend of sinners. They liked being around him, and he enjoyed them. People of his day tended to keep holy men at a respectful distance, but Jesus drew out something else, a hunger so deep that people crowded around just to touch his clothes. Jesus was a man for others. Think of the diverse list of friends he had from rich people. Roman centurions and Pharisees and tax collectors, prostitutes and leprosy victims. People like being with Jesus where he was, joy was. Jesus went out of his way to embrace the unloved and unworthy. The folks who don't matter to the rest of society, they embarrass us. We, we wish they'd go away to prove that nobody's matter to God. One unclean woman, too shy and full of shame to approach Jesus face to face, grabbed his robe, hoping he wouldn't notice. She learned, like many of us, that you cannot escape his gaze. Jesus proved in person that God loves people. We matter to God. And that, and that sense has been imprinted on the psyche of Bethany Assembly since way back with Sister Annabelle and Donna Lieberly. This would be a place that Jesus would come and hang out with his friends, a place open to his friends. I've been impressed through the years of ministry. Uh, I've had a lot of opportunity to, to think about this and to see this in action, but I've been impressed that 
that great churches, and great doesn't have to do necessarily with size, but that influential churches, uh, flourishing churches, healthy churches, but the churches make it the long haul, are all distinguished by a heightened sense of the power and the majesty of God and a healthy image of themselves. When I talk about a healthy self-image of a church, it really has to do with their image of God, a healthy God image and who they are in, as sons and daughters of God, their, their acceptance of God, their place in God's kingdom. There is a, a sense of spiritual and relational vitality that gives those churches an outward focus. They have the resources to flow with God's Spirit and manage the changes God wants to bring in order to transform their world. You know, it's true in the early church. When Peter and John are warned not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus after they heal the lame man, you know, at the, at the beautiful gate, they go, back to the, they go back to the local church, and in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, the, the church breaks out into this incredible prophetic prayer. I wish we had time to unpack it. We don't. But, but in their prophetic prayer, they, 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 they call out to a sovereign God, the maker of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that, and a glorious God, a powerful God. And, and they say, God... These same people, try, they crucified Jesus and they try to stop your plan. And they crucified Jesus thinking that they were winning. But all along it was part of your plan. They weren't winning at all. It was part of your plan of redemption. And now these same people, they're trying to stop us. And they're not going to be able to stop us. They can't thwart us any more than they can thwart or hinder Jesus. Why? Because they were serving Jesus. They were his body. The Acts church saw themselves as a people of destiny and prophecy. They were servants of Almighty God. He is the sovereign Lord. He has all power. Listen to their words. They cry in Acts 4. They say, now, Lord, after this lengthy prayer, they say, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In verse 31 of the passage gives us the results. The place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The early church was not just witnessing prophecy. They were fulfilling it. They were living it. They were themselves a prophetic people of destiny. They served an awesome God who had called them to impact their world. And I can tell you that Bethany Assembly has displayed that same spirit. I had the privilege of feeling it and absorbing it. You know, when they tell you I was a young kid when I came here, 22 years old, wet behind the ears. I was out of my depth in a mud puddle. I mean, I was... If you'd have looked up in the dictionary, you know, inexperienced, green, young, especially when the church elected us, pray, church, pray, we're in trouble now, you know, it would have had my picture there. But Sister Annabelle and Donna planted healthy seeds of vision and destiny. 
And then Brother Clay and Sister Clay came, and for 22 years, they poured a sense of the majesty of God into this church. Brother Clay was an incredible preacher, great communicator. I know when I came, uh, some old-timers kind of know my story. I don't have time to go into it in detail, but I'll give you a little snippet. My father was schizophrenic paranoid when I was young. He uh, went off to the mental hospital in New York. He was in and out of institutions. My father was a crazy, violent man. My mother struggled to raise us, and, and uh, we were rescued, I said, by a little assemblies of God church in Schenectady, New York. God called me to ministry, and I showed up in Adrian. Uh, I showed up in Adrian Green and experienced no ministry background whatsoever. And uh, I remember sitting on the front row on Airport Highway listening to Brother Clay preach week after week, my mouth wide open. He was a great preacher, and, and I loved him, and uh, he loved this church and loved this county. Brother Clay had this winsome personality. He was warm. He was friendly. He'd walk into a room. The whole place felt better because he was there. He, he didn't pastor just Bethany Assembly. He pastored Adrian and Lenawee County. He was this county's pastor, and he he built, he built into this church. He was a vision caster. And week after week, he told us, this is who God is. Look at the word. This is how great and powerful and wonderful and glorious. This is what he wants of us. This is what we can achieve. And, and that image of the glory of God was, was imprinted on this church. And it was, uh, it was that image that God is great. And he's called us to love him with our whole being and love people and prove it that impacted this church. Bethany, uh, Bethany would always reach out to people that Jesus would call a friend. Bethany would always be a place that Jesus loved to come and hang out with his friends, whether that meant Sunday school classes in buses on Molzer Street with Sister Annabelle, or moving from Park Street to Airport Road and you know, purchasing uh, the 50 acres that this church stands on today. I, I was so grateful that Brother Clay bought this property. $1,000 an acre. Can you imagine that? $1,050. We bought the two acres on the corner. I think we paid 30000 for those two acres on the corner, if my memory is right. My memory is right, but we bought it. I think it was $30,000. It was $30, yeah, you never know about my memory, you know. I was talking to Bob Oliver, you know, uh, Man Buick wanted to buy that corner lot, but they didn't have enough for their showroom, whatever they needed. They needed a clear corner, you know, because and uh, they were trying to buy a couple more acres from us, and they were wanting to give us just a couple thousand an acre. And we, and we said, no way, you know, so we bought their acreage in, instead. And, uh, you know, two acres on the corner is a disaster when it happened. <laughs> And uh, it's ours. Thank God it's ours. But, uh, but in those days, they built the church on Airport Road. It was full of sacrifice. You know, no, no bank would offer us during Brother Clay's time any kind of mortgage. People, board members mortgaged their homes. Young people, Gary Wilson sold his bicycle, gave it to the building program. During my time, Sunday school teachers crammed far too many children into those mobile classrooms on Airport Road. Remember, we'd have Sunday school meetings. We've got to get kids. Let's get kids. And they'd say, why? We've got too many now. We can't, we can't take, we can't cram any more in, you know. My point is, Bethany has always been aware of a, of a great God. 
And that great God has called us to love him with our whole being and to love people that he that there is friends he he wants them to know him he wants them to know he's for them we come to preach the accept the, the year of jubilee god's for us and to prove that bethany has done it through so many outreach ministries through the years too many to name but i'll name a few bus ministry during my time uh, outreaches to the migrant camps migrant workers would come up i'm sure they still do to work work in the farms around uh, Lenaway County, and we sent our buses to pick their kids up. We brought them to our daycare at no cost. We did ministry to the camps in Spanish and showed the cross and the switchblade and other kinds of things. Good to great today. What an awesome, what an awesome ministry that is. I love it. I love it. It's the Bethany way. And that vision and sense of destiny allowed Bethany to weather the many the many storms and obstacles placed in our path through the years, and there have been a lot of them. You know, who could imagine this church not only surviving, but thriving after the crushing homegoing of, of an incredible pastor and dynamic leader in Brother Clay? Many of you remember, I remember well, February 2nd, 1972, I'll never forget the phone call. Sister Clay called and asked me to do the radio broadcast because Brother Clay was on his way to the hospital. And I did the broadcast, I rushed to the hospital, and he was already gone. He was my father figure, only the second father figure and mentor that I felt like I was really close to in my life up until that point. He said I was 22 years old, I'd only been here two months, and I was crushed. This church rallied around Sister Clay and her boys, and I wormed my way into becoming, you know, one of those boys. And, and, uh, and you rallied around Marilyn and me. And as has been mentioned, several months later, you took the monumental step of calling us to be your pastors. I can tell you that would have never worked, would have never worked unless I had the love, support, and encouragement of Sister Clay, the official board, and this body of believers, you loved us, you supported Marilyn and me, you were patient with me, didn't have to be patient with her, but you were patient with me. You laughed at my corny jokes once in a while. Anybody wanna buy a duck this morning? You know, and in this environment, God built my leadership and we grew together I listened to Ron Sparks' great message uh, a couple weeks ago, and he talked about building this facility. Uh, through a series of events, we were forced to become our own general contractors. We didn't really start out planning that. We ended up with a strike. Uh, we, uh, the, uh, we had union contracts with everything except the masonry, and the masonry, we just couldn't get a good bid. And we got a bid from another uh, union that wasn't AFLCI or whatever the local union was. And I'm not knocking unions is just the way it was at that moment and we got a bid from another group that was so much better and we couldn't afford not to do it and so we had a strike and we had union crews sneak in on the weekends don't tell anybody you know on through the other gate and do things for us but we were on general contractors we we had money saved that we've been saving we raised we uh, borrowed seven hundred and fifty thousand and we raised money continuously for three years and and as you know, continuously after that, still doing that today. Thank God. Thank God. 
But if you comprehended a, a, even a smidgen of what little I know about anything practical, you know, especially building, I mean, I, don't, I do have an electric hammer. Uh, my kids got me. It's a little claw hammer, a real little one. It has a cord. You plug it in the wall. It doesn't do anything, but you can't get very far. And it's not big enough to do much damage, so <laughs> it's the only tool I'm allowed to use. You know? <laughs> but if you, if you knew how, how impractical I, you know, and I'm, you know, sort of in charge of this building program, you'd shudder uh, to imagine that the building is even standing today, even if the termites are holding hands or not, that it's even standing up today is a, is a miracle from God, you know. I remember coming out to the job site about every day, and we did have a foreman, and he talked to me about stuff. Should we do this or that? And I'd say, well, yeah, that sounds good. I'd go away saying, I don't even know what we talked about. I just told the man to do something. I don't even know, I don't even know what he said. You know? But I'm indebted to men like uh, Earl Hebb and Odell Lawler, Howard Wilson, Herb Brown. Herb was on the board when we first started. Then Bob Oliver came into a spot. J.C. Cook, Les Salter. I'm ministering with Bob this morning. I think he's the last of uh, those board members uh, that were here, that were involved during those, during those days. We met every Tuesday night from 6 to about 11 for three, almost three years straight, almost every Tuesday night of the year. Imagine the weight. Those men looking at this young kid and, you know, in charge of this massive uh, building program. But with God's help, with God's help, with God's help, we did it. There have, been, there have been other speed bumps along the way. But Bethany has overcome them all with God's help and a vision and a sense of prophetic destiny. We are the church of the living God. We have been called by God to impact our world. We serve a great God. We are, we are not just watching prophecy happen. We're living prophecy. God is fulfilling it in and through us. That's been the Bethany way. Uh-oh, I'm looking at the clock. Let me ask you a question this morning. This is the third message of the three the scriptures, I didn't forget them. Let me ask you a question. What happens inside a church that is so powerful, so incendiary, that it gives birth to a vision that motivates us to action? You know, I, Moses is a leadership hero of mine, and I historically viewed Exodus 3 as the focal point of his call to deliver Israel from bondage, but it really germinates in Exodus 2. We know his story. Moses was miraculously spared a premature death and was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Stephen tells us in Acts 7 he was no ordinary child. He was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was powerful in, in speech and, and action. But he made a significant choice. Hebrews 11 says, when he grew up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And then the verses we read in the story, one day, chapter 2, 
after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at hard labor. Take special note of the phrases, his own people, and watch them at hard labor. Verse 11 says he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. There was something about watching the daily oppression that stirred a sense of how horribly unjust it all was. And then he sees one of his own people being beaten. He watches the nose smashed. He sees the blood spurting. And he couldn't take it anymore. He looks around to see if anybody is watching. He takes matters into his own hand. He steps in and kills the Egyptian. The next day he sees two Hebrews fighting. Sees the same sights. Hears the same sounds. He can't take it. The frustration is too great. He's at the edge of his emotional limits. Now fast forward to his flight to Midian. He, he happens upon some young ladies who are being hassled by some rogue shepherds and he comes to their rescue. There's something in Moses that reacts against the misery of injustice. He can't take it. Hit the advance button to chapter 3 in the burning bush. And there's the shock and awe of the bush that burns without being consumed. And then he hears God talk. And God says in chapter 3, verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out. I, I am concerned about their suffering. Do you see what's happening? God is saying to Moses, what you saw that day that made you so unbelievably angry is what I've been seeing for a long time. And I can't stand it either. I've been watching the horror and anguish. I've been listening to the moans and cries. I'm stirred to do something about this. And I see that you are also stirred by what moves me. So I'm assigning you to be my emissary. I see a passion in you, Moses, for your people. I see your emotion. I see you can't stand idly by when people are oppressed. I see what that does inside of you. And I'm going to use that firestorm of passion. I'm going to harness that to set my people free. The furnace of frustration is going to forge leadership metal inside of you that I will use for my glory. The key to understanding leadership formation is a recognition that when God's heart and a human heart are aligned perfectly around what frustrates heaven and earth, the miracle of vision is born. When things that frustrate the character and nature of God begin to drive us to angst, urgency is created to passionately pursue change. How many of you, along with me, grew up watching Popeye the Sailor Man? Anybody? Remember Olive Oil? I mean, she was a real traffic stopper. When Olive Oil was around, men barked and dogs, or men barked, dogs barked and men whistled. <laughs> oh, I'm in a hurry. I got my, I got my tang tangled up there. <laughs> You know, Popeye was an easygoing guy, but when olive oil was threatened, oh, baby, watch out. You know, his blood would begin to simmer, finally come to a boil. His blood pressure would rise. He'd pop that can of spinach, you know. His, his 
biceps would take on supernatural, you know, supernatural power. But remember the words. Remember the words he would utter. They, they, they for generations of Americans, have been mortal words burned on our psyche. Can you say them with me? He would say what? That's all. I can stand, and I can't stand no more. He'd pop that spinach. He'd tackle Brutus, and he'd save olive oil from her distress. Well, that line means something to us. It prompts us and propels us out of our seat, moves us out of our comfort zones. It makes us say, we've got to do something historic about this. What about Bethany Assembly? Is it time for our Popeye moment? We're 75 years old. Wow, 75 years old. What's God calling us to do now? I had a Popeye moment several years ago. I skipped a whole bunch, that's why I'm trying to find where I am. But had a Popeye moment several years ago. I was on my deck on a Saturday. It was a beautiful day, a rare day when I didn't have anything going on. Marilyn was out for the day, and I went out to read the paper, and when I was sitting there, the wind blew the door closed, and I didn't realize it was locked uh, until I tried to go in. Now, before I go further, there are no steps to the ground <laughs> on my deck, and my deck's eight and a half feet off the ground. I, I measured it because it would have been 100 feet if I wouldn't have measured it because I'm a pastor, you know, and... So I measured it, and there are bushes around it. And uh, I realized that uh, I felt trapped on my deck because I was afraid to jump off. And uh, so I thought, well, no, but, you know, it was a nice day. I wasn't going to starve. <laughs> I wasn't going to die. And I thought, I'll just sit out here and pray a while. And I did for a minute or two or three, maybe. And, and then I got mad because my, my self-image didn't include being trapped on my deck because I was afraid to jump. But with my pain-riddled knees and uh, my age, I was afraid. I was afraid to jump off the deck. I had a Popeye moment. I said, I, that's all. I don't know if I said this or not, but it sounds good for this sermon. You know, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more, you know. And I climbed over the edge. I looked down. I climbed back over the edge, you know. <laughs> I did that a couple of times, and eventually, it's probably not as dramatic as I'm making it, but it's fun to me, you know. Finally, I jumped, and, and I lived. I lived to tell a story. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> but, but God spoke to me. He spoke to me. And he said, uh, are, you, are you young enough in the spirit? Are you young enough in the spirit to still jump? If I tell you, if I tell you to jump, are you willing to jump? Or to put it in Jesus' words to Peter, if I tell you to get out of the boat, are you willing to get out of the boat and walk with me, do what I'm doing? You know, it wasn't a miracle that Peter walked on the water. Peter knew how to walk. He'd been doing that since maybe he was 10 months old. The miracle wasn't that he walked on the water. The miracle was the water held him up. Jesus did that. But Peter had to get out of the boat and walk. Peter had to get to the edge, climb over, take the first step. It wasn't an out-of-body experience. He, God didn't pick him up and throw him over the edge. He had to do that. And God began to speak to me and say, Are you young enough? Are you flexible enough? to flow with what I'm doing now. 
As we get older, we become less and less flexible. We become, less and, we become risk averse. Things are going well. Let's not rock the boat. In terms of organizational life cycles, you know, our, our infancy years were exciting, were wonderful. We took steps of faith. We mortgaged homes. We sacrificed. We gave. We, and we grew. And, and you might, if you look at the bell curve, Itzakadisa's bell curve on uh, life cycles, you might place us at prime, which is just before the top, where there is a, a healthy tension between being entrepreneurial and also being controlled. Taking risks, but doing them in a controlled way. Or at the top, which is stable, which says, hey, things are going well. Let's not rock the boat. Let's keep the machinery rolling. Let's enjoy our heritage, but let's not do anything risky. But when you're at the top, when you're unstable, it's the beginning of the end. And my challenge, my challenge to you and me today to ask that serious question, thank God for our great history, but are we willing, are we willing today, if Jesus says, I want you to get out of the boat, and are we willing to do it? Are we willing to take risks? Are we willing to follow our pastor who says, hey, let's have a faith move. Let's do something different. Let's reach a new group of people. Are we willing to do that? Or do we want to just settle back and, and enjoy 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 what we have I think I know the answer to that but I pray that we will I pray that as we are at this 75 year milestone what a wonderful milestone it is what a great history we could go on and on and I have gone on we can go on and on for a long long time but God is still calling us to the greatest evangelism the world has ever known He's still calling us to love him with all of our heart and soul and might and to love his friends, his friends, his friends, and to prove it with good to great and any other way we can think of. He's calling us to prove it, to reach out, to, to not be satisfied with where we are. And any kind of milestone of celebration is always a time of new dedication. It's, all, it's, not, it's not a graduation, it's a commencement. What does God have for us now? Will you join me? Will you join me in a renewed commitment of going forward to our roots? Can we continue to focus on what is most important? Can we renew our commitment to love God with our whole being and, and to love people who he wants to be his friends? It's the Bethany way. Bow with me in prayer this morning. Lord, I pray that you will anoint us. We do dedicate ourselves to that today, Lord. Lord, take these ramblings, I pray, and encourage us. Encourage us. Let us, let us savor your faithfulness. You've been faithful through all of these years. You're such a great, glorious God. You're faithful. Thank you. Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. While the message of the gospel is the same as it was when Sister Annabelle and Donna planted this church, the methods changed. Thank you, Lord. You're a God who's always on the move. We're Pentecostals. We move with the Spirit. While the message is the same, the way we do it is different. We stay culturally relevant. Thank you for helping Bethany to do that all these 75 years. And Lord, we dedicate ourselves afresh and anew today. Help us, Lord to continue the Bethany way. We thank you in Jesus' name.